Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. We have a great show for you today. We're talking about recycling and reinventing in the family business, and we are blessed to be joined by the Shine family, Brian, Adam, and Richard, and um, welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to you know, just start off with is we typically do like a, just a quick, in, or a quick uh, overview of how you entered the family business. What was your route to getting into the family business? Um, you know, joining a family business isn't for everybody. Um, for those of us that uh, do find joy in working together and uh, you know, spending the time you know, in, in battle and business together, um, I think it's, you know, it's a pretty special thing. And so I just, uh, you know, if we want to go around the horn, Richard, I'll start with you. What did, what did you do before the family business or did you immediately jump into the family business right from the get-go and kind of give us a little bit about that? Actually, I did not. Um, I, um, I had no desire whatsoever to join the family business. Uh, the family business at that time consisted of about three employees uh, with a 15-year-old truck uh, driving around uh, Western New York, within 10 miles of Western New York, picking up scrap metal, um, primarily from industrial plants. But it was not something I had any interest in. Um, so in college, I went through the ROTC program, uh, got commissioned a second lieutenant in the Air Force, went to pilot training for a year, um, th then spent the next five years flying airplanes around the world, including my final uh, uh, tour, which was a one year in Vietnam. So my plan was to be an airline pilot. Um, seemed like a natural thing for me. The problem though was that I had a commitment to the Air Force of six years. I could not get out uh, before my six years were up by the time uh, that happened, they had hired so many guys ahead of me um, that I knew that uh, the airlines are all based on seniority. It has nothing to do with your ability. When the guy in front of you uh, either dies or moves up, you move up one seat. So, uh, and I've been flying four engine jets uh, around the world, cargo airplanes. Didn't really wanna be a flight engineer, which I might've been able to do and um, I didn't work much for um, my family as a kid. There really wasn't much for a young person to do back then. Um, but I went down because I started to fill out airline applications. I could see what was going on. I went down and I saw all these jet engine parts laying around. They, back in those days, they had uh, an account. It was Curtis Wright in Buffalo. Uh, they're long gone, but uh, they were building jet parts under contract to Pratt & Whitney. So I got excited when I saw all these uh, jet engine parts. And the rest is history. I've been here over 50 years. Oh, neat. You know, sometimes it's just that little thread of connection that brings us together, right? Sure, exactly. Right. And it's been a good ride. I mean, there were days when I'd drive by the airport on my way to work uh, when things maybe weren't going so good at work or the company, uh, when I think, boy, sure be a whole lot easier, you know, to be an airline pilot than to be running your own scrap recycling company. Uh, you'd have a heck of a lot less problems, um, but um, it, it's worked out great. And uh, in the long run, I'm very happy. Great, thank you. Brian. 
Yeah, so so my story is uh, more that that I did grow up working in the family business. I started at age 15. And the, the nice thing for me is that, um, and I don't know if we're supposed to say 15 year olds were working, but that was a long time ago. So, so it probably okay. Any case, um, it was nice for me. We, we are 106 years in, in business. Uh, I'm fourth generation as is Adam. We started, uh, my great grandfather started the business. When I started working in the, in the summer of 15, you know, 15 years of age, I immediately loved the business. I loved everything about it. I loved the fact that we were preparing materials to go on to be melted. I loved the sortation, the, the people is, is what I really loved. And the nice thing for me is I never once felt uh, a minute of pressure to, to come into the family business. And in fact, uh, my dad was very, you know, you go do what makes you happy. And, and this is what made me happy. So all through high school, all through college, I worked every, every summer, every break. And, um, continued to enjoy the business. I saw from a very early age that there's no shortage of challenges, but, but also opportunities. And so I graduated college on a Saturday and, and literally started working on Monday in the business. So um, I was hooked. Nice. Thank you. Adam. Yeah. So I'm sort of like my father in uh, the respects that I, I never planned on getting into the family business. It was not something that really ever crossed my mind. Obviously, growing up, I, I knew what the family did. I was interested in it. And I remember times my dad coming home and being very stressed out and saying, you know, things weren't weren't going great at the office. And then other times they would go great. And, you know, that was all back when think copper was 80 cents a pound or less. Um, you know, now we're seeing uh, copper much, much higher. Uh, but for me, my path was I graduated college. I ended up getting a job with a software company locally here in Buffalo. And, uh, you know, I started out with them and, and sort of rolled up my sleeves and uh, did pretty well and, and carved out a, a pretty successful career in software. I really enjoyed what I was doing. And uh, ultimately, the company changed hands and the new owner, really, in a lot of ways, uh, both the new owner and the vice president of the company were, were great mentors to me and brought me along. And uh, ultimately, I got offered a, a sales manager position, but it was uh, incumbent upon me uh, moving to uh, Allentown, PA, if I wanted the position at the time, I was uh, in a pretty serious relationship. I don't believe I was uh, uh, engaged at that point, but my dad sort of said to me, hey, I'm not going to be in the business forever. Turns out that he will be, but uh, I'm not going to be in the business forever. Uh, how, how do you feel about, you know, joining your brother in the, in the business? And I, I really thought to myself, wow, not something I'd considered. It kind of came out of left field and I, uh, I gave it some consideration and I thought, you know, this is really the best opportunity to try to, you know, make something, um, you know, work for yourself and, and try to really be proud and prideful in what you do. And, and really at the end of the day, uh, you have the ultimate ability to sort of create your path and, and make things happen. So, um, I did. I joined the business. And one of the first things that I did when I joined the business was got involved in a joint venture that we had uh, with a company called Sun King in, in Rochester, New York. And uh, I don't, uh, you know, sort of like one of the first things my dad did when he came into the business was he saw uh, airplane scrap. And that was kind of, he realized that that was kind of his hook. Well, like likewise, I saw electronic scrap and sort of uh, found that enjoyable because I had come from the software world. So that was one of the first things I did was I got more involved in a joint venture that we had with an electronics recycling company. And now it's it's been, I think, 12 going on 13 years. So it's uh, it's been great. Beautiful. Appreciate it, Kit. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things that I, you know, in, in when we spoke before is just the, the history of the company. I don't want to, I don't want to hit every single aspect, but one of the things that just really, I think resonates is, you know, how did the company start? Where, you know, get it, how did it get its formation? What did it do prior to what you're doing today? And, you know, what did that look like? Who wants to, who wants to tackle that? 
Could I, uh, should I start? Yeah. And then if you guys want to add anything, feel free to jump in. Um, it actually started uh, with my grandfather, my son's great-grandfather, who emigrated from Russia or Poland. Uh, they weren't really sure where the borders were back in those days. And he came to the United States um, with very little education, no real money, and uh, couldn't speak the language. So um, there wasn't a lot of uh, jobs available to him. Um, he was part of the Jewish uh, uh, community and it was very common for people uh, in his situation to get into what we called peddling in those days. He was a peddler. Um, he had a push cart and he went around the neighborhood collecting rags, waste paper, um, and a little bit of metal in this push cart, um, which he would take to a more established uh, uh, immigrant, basically, uh, that had been there longer and had established uh, uh, an actual company. Um, he worked like a dog. Eventually, he made enough money to be able to buy a horse and wagon, um, and he was able to carry a lot more material. So um, he you know, started to make some more money. Eventually, he was able to afford to buy a shop. That's what they called them back then. And um, the shop was uh, uh, successful. Um, and they eventually got a bigger place. And they became one of the largest uh, wholesalers in the country for rags and waste paper, uh, not so much in metals and a uh, very successful business, successful company. Um, they sent my dad to the University of Buffalo Law School. Um, he was our, the first one in our family to graduate from college. But unfortunately for him, he graduated from law school in 1932, right in the heart of the depression. So there were, um, um, there, he couldn't really make a living practicing law. Um, so he went into his family's business, his father and his brother. And uh, like I said, they built up a very successful wholesale rag recycling and paper recycling company. The problem was that as World War II came around, they developed all these synthetic fibers that were not recyclable, like nylon, Dacron, rayon, that type of thing. Um, so that business started to decline and they um, saw the handwriting on the wall. My uh, father wanted to get more involved in metals. My uncle did not. Um, so they ended up splitting and my dad ended up uh, bringing a fellow named Joseph Baker into the business um, because um, I had expressed no interest in coming in. And uh, this uh, gentleman, Joseph Baker, was uh, somewhere between my age and my father's age. And uh, he would be the transition if I ever did decide to come into the company. So um, they concentrated on the metals. And, uh, you know, that was in the mid 1950s. And here we are. Awesome. So you guys had a, a huge giant pivot before pivots were talked about, right? You know, today, everybody talks about how they pivoted in the last uh, 20, you know, 18, 24 months. Now uh, you were pivoting well before your time. Um, that's great. Now, I appreciate that. One of the things that I think that's important out of that is making sure you know, it sounds like you said, you called it, they watched the writing on the wall. They saw the writing on the wall. And, you know, when we're talking to family businesses, um, you know, we have so many examples, you know, Eastman Kodak, for example, and there's other examples, whether they be in Buffalo or Syracuse, where people didn't pivot, you know, the, the companies didn't make those changes because they stopped looking at the writing on the wall. So good on your uh, grandfather and, and uh, great grandfather. Sorry, grandfather and father for you know making making those those pivots. Do Brian or Adam? Do either want either one of you want to add something to you know company history? Well, uh, uh, from the perspective that you're you're right, a part of the need to to continue being an entrepreneur within your an entrepreneur within your enterprise family business 
uh, is, is dictated by writing on the wall for sure. But part of it's also um, strategic and, and looking um, at different ways of, of operating and you know, really credit to, to all the shines before us and, and hopefully Adam and I can, can continue this. Um, but um, we've taken many steps along the way and, and learned many lessons from, from people around us, including our, our customers have taught us a lot. For example, um, in the copper business, which we've been dedicated and focused and, and narrow niched um, um, developing the reputation and the expertise around, um, there's an element to our business in protecting and mitigating the risk. It's, it's a tool known as hedging. And um, we were supplying copper to a facility that 45 years ago, the purchasing agent said to, to uh, my father, you will or you won't. You will learn how to hedge the product or you won't be our supplier. And the reason he said that is because in the old days, it was the old axiom of buy low and, and sell high as an example. And um, and the, the consumer of this didn't wanna hear, you know, the market's too low or I don't have it. They needed to be supplied whenever they needed the product, regardless of market. They weren't trying to outguess the market. They were trying to, to fill their, their needs. And so they needed a supplier that understood that and can similarly buy and sell in any market condition. So, so we've learned a lot from our customers, but we've also developed strategies to help grow the business in, in sometimes in non-core ways, meaning within the recycling industry. But for example, we partnered uh, and have now a 26-year partnership with somebody that back in those days was a competitor. And my dad and, and this gentleman started talking at an at a industry meeting and said, there's gotta be ways to, we work, you know, could work together. And you mentioned Eastman Kodak and that was actually the, the origin of it. Less than a month later, Individually, our two firms, who is a Buffalo-based scrap dealer as well, our two firms were approached by Eastman Kodak to look at a project. And when we walked out of, uh, of that meeting, we realized it was a huge opportunity, but some of the materials were beyond our skill set and our focus. And by joining forces, we were able to, to end up prevailing and operated on site a recycling facility for Eastman Kodak for 11 years. That partnership still exists today. We leveraged the Eastman Kodak experience to Xerox, uh, both in Webster, New York, and then out in California, we were recycling copy machines that, that came off lease for seven years. So it really, and, and now um, the electronics uh, firm that Adam is an officer in, we've actually had a 10-year strategic management consulting agreement with, and we've leveraged that to other strategic uh, consulting agreements. And so that's outside of our core activity, meaning Manitoba's, but realizing that you know, again, uh, having half the pie is better than all of zero. So, um, so we've had a couple different joint venture activities, and including one that my son is now running. So he represents fifth generation. He's based in Denver, Colorado, but we have an 11-year partnership with a Canadian partner, and we got involved in recycling meters scrap as they put in new smart meters, municipalities, contractors, utilities around the U.S., and they take out the old meter, and these can be electric, gas, or water, uh, we do that work in Manitoba's St. Louis plant. So we've had an 11-year partnership with this Canadian partner. And those are examples of uh, diversifying outside of your, your core business, but creating opportunity that continues to support. And it's within our focus, it's recycling, but left and right, if you will. So. Absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's interesting that you say that. One of the things that I talk about is, you know, when people are looking for those additional income streams, and I do think that it's important that, you know, as you're going through, you know, especially in a family business, because we don't, you know, family businesses typically last longer than non-family owned businesses for exactly the reasons that, you know, the, the three of you have talked about it, just, you know, opportunities came up, there was, you know, there's a, a camaraderie, you know, within the family to, and a, you know, a, a desire to want to do well for, you know, with the family. Um, but what I teach is, you know, if you, if you grab your thumb and say, that's, you know, these are our core disciplines, our core business, and this is what we do. If you continue walking down your fingers, you know, you know, your, your index, and then the, your, your, your middle finger, you don't want to get too far away from your core. 
And that's exactly what you guys have been doing is taking those core processes and the core, you know, um, things that you've learned through the years and said, how can I apply them in other industries, but really smartly. I love what you're talking about in that it's, we, we make these strategic partnerships where it's like, we know X, Y, and Z, they know, you know, A, B, and C, let's put that together and do something better. Yeah, I was just going to say these are the, and then I'll turn it over to Adam, but the, these are all built on mutual respect, um, you know, obviously um, focused on, on your values, but it's also understanding what, like you said, what your strengths and weaknesses are and, and complementing. Um, we, we have partners, and fortunately, in both cases with these two JV companies that, uh, that bring something to the table, as do we. And, and so both partners are, are really valued and, and well-respected, and, 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 and it works. And that's been a good thing for us. So, Adam? Yeah, I was just going to add to that. Um, Brian did a, a good job of setting the table because I was going to talk a little bit about the joint ventures as well. But one of the things, Michael, I think that we've done strategically is we haven't veered too far from our, our core, as you just pointed out, which is recycling. At the end of the day, that's what we know. That's what we're competent in. Um, you know, it's not like we are out selling, um, you know, soft serve ice cream, uh, as an example, all of our, our activities are centered around recycling. So it's something we know we're comfortable with. We've been doing for a long time. We know end markets. We know the type of materials that are generated from the various streams and, and we have places to sell those materials. So while we have spread our wings, it's, it's, we've done so under the guise of, of what, our core businesses, which is recycling at the end of the day. Yeah, core competencies, you know, we like to, to talk about them as. Um, somebody mentioned values, you know, that your family, the Shine family has um, a set of values of people, you know, how you do things and whatnot. Do you mind, are, are those values written down? Do you guys talk about, you know, what are our core values as a, as a family, as a family business? Maybe I'll jump in for a second, then maybe my dad might have something to add to this, but it, I, I, I don't think we've done a great job in formally um, committing to paper our values, but it is well talked about within our, our firm, for sure, within the family, in that, you know, in this industry, in our industry, recycling, it's a small industry, and, and, and word spreads fast. Uh, a lot of family businesses, and in some cases, people in my generation, um, uh, are perfectly good, capable, competent people, but their father acted in, 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 inappropriately. And unfortunately, it's very difficult to overcome. So we operate from the perspective that, you know, it takes a, 105 years to build a reputation and 10 minutes to ruin it. And it's not to say that we've had successful relationships with everybody we've ever encountered. We certainly have differences, but uh, the fellow that uh, my father mentioned before, Joe Baker, who had a 50-year career with our business, used to say, you know, you walk your side of the street and I'll walk mine if you can't agree. And, and that's fine. It's, it's uh, we just keep going. We treat people the way that we want to be treated. My father uh, didn't really talk too much about this, but, but with the aviation perspective, um, for example, if we sent product to a customer back in, in the old days and they rejected it for some reason, downgraded it, he literally would jump in the plane and go visit them because we wanted to learn, we wanted to learn, you know, who is the supplier that came into us that, and in some cases he would get to the consumer and they'd say, oh, sorry, we already melted it, you know, and, which is no credibility whatsoever. And those people you don't do business with for long. And, and so we buy product that requires us to sort and, and report back to the supplier. For example, insulated copper wire that we buy from the construction industry throughout North America. And as that material comes into us, we process it to remove the coating and get to the copper. Well, there is hundreds literally of chopping operations or, or stripping operations or people that could process it along the way, but they come to us all over the US and Canada because we have the reputation. And so we truly value that and understand the importance and significance. And, and we are not about to turn away from, from those values. So. Um, we haven't committed it to paper, formalized it, but, but we live it every day. Dad? Yeah, I would like to add, um, <laughs> when I first came into the company, there was a lot of games that were played in the recycling industry. Brian sort of uh, tiptoed around the tulips with this, but the reality is there were some bad actors. And um, 
uh, a lot of bad actors. Uh, and um, my uh, partner, Joe Baker, my, my father and I only really worked together for a couple of years. He was pretty anxious to retire and he was quite a bit older than uh, Joe Baker. So, um, so we didn't really work together that much, but Joe Baker used to, uh, he and my dad had worked together for quite some time. And he always told stories about my father. For one thing, um, he um, was chairman of the ethics committee of the Erie County Bar Association. Um, well, I used to joke that it's pretty easy being an ethical lawyer if you're a non-practicing lawyer, but it, uh, it does show my father's character. And Joe Baker used to also say that if my, my father owed you $341.15, you were gonna get the 15 cents because he always wanted to pay you exactly what he owed you and expected the same thing in uh, return. Um, and uh, we were taught early on, uh, which Brian did mention that your reputation is everything. And it took, it's taken a, you know, over a hundred years for Manitoba Corporation to develop the reputation in the industry that we have. Um, although we got a big boost when Brian became chairman of our national association because he got to know everybody in the industry. And, um, but we always had a good reputation and it only got better and enhanced with, uh, with Brian's activities in, uh, in uh, Israel. So yes, core values are extremely important and we do live them every day. We, we, we practice the golden rule. We treat our customers like we want to be treated. And uh, that was sort of refreshing in our industry back in the early uh, days of my career. Gotcha. Thank you. That's awesome. I, I'm a big believer in core purpose and core values. For this reason, what, you know, what we've learned through studying other companies, and not just us, but other professionals that have studied companies, is that when you're able to, to connect the core purpose and the core values for the employees, it helps them to have something other than just coming in for a paycheck. And, you know, I, you know we, we forget, you know, you're in the recycling business, but the good that you're doing for the planet in recycling all of those things, the goods that you're doing for all of these companies and the jobs that you create that trickle down through the, all the work that you do, there's a lot of really good things that are happening inside of there. I, I just wanted to jump in if I could and say, I really appreciate you saying that because um, you're exactly right, especially in today's employment environment where it's so difficult to attract and retain employees. One of the advantages that we have is, is it's purpose-driven and it truly is in, in terms of the important work. And, and with the report that came out earlier this week in terms of climate control and damage that's been done and um, what, scrap is, is really an important um, part of the solution and um, it's starting to get much more recognition. I remember when I first started with my dad in business, you know, we were the junkyard and, and don't let your women and children walk, you know, past the front gate. And it, it was awful. And it was, um, you know, really, uh, you felt incriminated, even though uh, what we were doing, we knew that it was an important role. But as time has gone by, it's raised in significance. And I think evidence of that is through the, the pandemic, the early days of COVID, the trade association that, that we are members of um, was able to, or was instrumental in having us declared as an essential industry. And yeah. so the politicians understood the importance of, and it, it was very broad based, it was all recyclers, but they understood that we had to keep the products moving and it's a, it's a feedstock. What we do is create a feedstock to the manufacturing process. So it's really important. And I just came from a, a safety meeting with all of our employees and you're right, that's an opportunity. And, and that's what we discussed today was how far the industry has come. And it used to be uh, when my dad and I first began, you know, uh, when I first began my journey, um, it was visual. It was a visual inspection of the product quality. And then it moved to um, more with Adam's age coming in, um, something called a Niton analyzer. So it was a significant investment in equipment to be able to shoot uh, using RF technology, the materials to determine the content. And now that's not good enough. We just recently made a major investment in lab equipment for the first time ever 
so that we could analyze uh, in order to perform for our customers. We're ISO certified, the International Standards Organization, and it's a critical certification for us that allows us to continue with existing clients and also to garner new clients. And it's, it's a complex uh, standard, especially when you consider that scrap materials are the input. And um, we feel really fortunate that our crew, our staff, our team of Manitoba folks um, understand and appreciate the, the mission. And so thank you for mentioning that. Great. Adam, would you mind you know, jumping in and talking your, your joint venture a little bit? You know, I don't think sometimes people realize the importance of why recycling all that, you know, the electric, you know, the, the electrical components and the, you know, jump on that. I know, yeah, I, know, I know you know what I'm thinking. I, I do. And I'm happy to talk about it. So, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, my, my father and brother alluded to, you know, some of the, the nonsense that went on in the, the metals recycling business back in the day. And, one of the reasons I think I'm drawn to electronics is because it's, you don't have those stories. It's a much more immature industry. It hasn't been around nearly as long. So you don't have some of those stories and, and you generally don't have some of the, the players that are involved in the uh, metals recycling business. It's a, a, a little bit of a younger man's game, I would, I would say. Um, so I, I've been drawn to that. And, and yes, there is a, a major uh, issue with regard to education of individuals like yourself, Michael, who don't know what to do with this material. So when I'm talking about electronics, of course, I'm talking about computers and laptops and printers and cell phones and all of those things. But really, it's a lot more than that. If you look around your office and you think about anything that you plug in or more so nowadays, anything that uh, is wireless, whether it's, um, you know, an MP3 player or uh, whether it's uh, light up sneakers is something that we see, right? Because they've got a battery and a circuit board in them. Uh, all of those things are electronics and, and the proliferation of electronics is, is happening so fast and, and people are upgrading their materials and equipment so quickly. I mean, I, I tell the story often, but I remember growing up, we had one family computer that everybody shared. Um, and, uh, you know, I would write my school papers on it and my dad would check his email on there, probably AOL. I remember vividly it being dial up and, you know, it was slow. And, uh, you know, now fast forward, I've, I've got a cell phone, I've got a tablet. Actually, I've got a few tablets because I have kids. I've got a laptop, I've got a desktop here, I've got a desktop at home, I've got a printer at home, uh, I've got, uh, you know, it, it, all sorts of different devices, um, old DVD players and, and whatnot. So technology is evolving so fast and the problem is we need the education uh, of what to do with this stuff to catch up. So our business, uh, Sun King, that is our joint, joint venture, um, uh, or consulting uh, contract really focuses on trying to grow that business. And it is growing inherently. Uh, it's based really on two types of streams, B2B and B2C. So on the B2B side, I think generally people are savvy enough to know what to do with the material. But on the consumer side, even myself included, I've got material that I use at home or equipment rather that I use at home that I'll use until it dies because I don't want to spend unnecessary money on the latest, greatest stuff. Uh, it, it'll die. And then I'll put it in my basement for 10 years until my wife says, Hey, time to get rid of it. And it, it's a very common story that we hear from everybody. But the idea is to try to provide them access and the knowledge to know that you can't put it in the garbage. Uh, and you can't, it's, there's dangerous materials in the circuit boards. There's in the case of the old, uh, glass tube televisions, there's lead in there. And you don't want this stuff ending up in a landfill because then you could have major environmental issues. So, and, and frankly, one of the things that Sun King focuses on more so on the, on the commercial side than on the consumer side is reuse and repurposing electronics. And at the end of the day, that's absolutely the number one 
way to recycle equipment is to use it for its initially intended purpose. And if you can't, as a unit, uh, use it for its initially intended purpose, then you try to harvest the parts out of it and reuse those. Uh, if at the end of the day, none of it's reusable, then you break it down, you melt it and, and make new products out of it. So um, it's, uh, it's definitely a growing business. Uh, Sun King's been around now 21 years and um, we've, we've really seen uh, tremendous growth in the past three to five years. We're very happy with the trajectory, but like you said, uh, certainly we need to get the message out more than we have. Appreciate that, thanks. Yeah. Let's, you know, Richard, one of the things that you know, I found really interesting about your story is, you know, your love of flying and your, you know, that's, that was always your number one passion, correct? Well, not always. Uh, it started uh, uh, when I went to the university. I started out in the uh, St. Lawrence University as a freshman and I was a liberal arts major, history and government, and I really couldn't figure out how I was gonna make a living. But one of the things I did at St. Lawrence was I joined the ROTC program, which was completely voluntary and uh, a well-respected program. It was Army ROTC. And I was probably one of the worst guys uh, drilling. I had two left feet. But it was fun going out there and marching with a rifle and shooting the gun and all that kind of stuff. So when I transferred to UB to change my major to business uh, in with thinking, well, there is a possibility I might go into business at some point, um, they had Air Force ROTC. And what I didn't know as, uh, as a junior in college was how uh, um, ill-respected the ROTC program was at UB. The reason being that uh, freshmen and sophomores were forced into it and they hated it. And, um, uh, but I was, uh, I was told that I would get paid 90 cents a day if I joined it. So I thought, what the heck? Uh, that's $27 a month. And back then in the six, early 60s, it was pretty significant money. So I basically did it for the money. And then as I previously stated, I really didn't have that much desire to go into my father's business. So I thought, well, I'm gonna go into the Air Force. If I go into the Air Force, I really should learn how to fly. And um, I passed all the required uh, physicals and um, the testing, the psychological testing, all the stuff they did. And um, you know, they eventually shipped me off to pilot training. But um, my, when I got, uh, off active duty, I wanted to continue to fly. And I joined the reserves at Niagara Falls. So I was able to do that. But I also bought a half interest in a little tiny single engine airplane. Um, because I thought, you know, it'd be fun to be able to fly what we call general aviation. I had only really flown military type airplanes. So um, when I after I bought a half interest in this airplane, I found out how expensive those things were. They really are toys to some extent. And I started scheming about ways that we could use that device in business. So the company would kind of help me pay for it. And my father really didn't like airplanes. And, but he said, okay, as long as you want to do that, but I'm not going with you. And uh, our partner at the time, this Joseph Baker uh, was all for it. He said, that's really great. So we took our very first trip um, up to Messina, New York, and it's a company we still do business with today. It's an Alcoa plant. And um, we gradually started getting out of Buffalo. I think I had previously mentioned the when I joined the business, we, did, uh, we had a, a radius of about 10 miles at the most. And uh, we just didn't venture out of the local area. We had no competitive ability to do so. But once we got um, into an airplane, um, we could be gone for short times. Uh, we'd go out for a day, make three or four sales calls in two or three different cities. Sometimes we would even stop and have dinner with a potential customer on the way home. And we were only out of the office for a day and we could still mind the store. And we gradually built up the business and built up the company. 
you know, if you knock on enough doors, you're going to get some business. Eventually somebody says yes. And uh, my job was to sort of figure out how we could uh, do something with a potential customer or, or supplier. Joe Baker's job was to find the guy to knock on his door. So we were a good team and um, we uh, went through lots of different airplanes and uh, uh, branched farther and farther and enough, uh, enough of those doors uh, said yes to us. And that really helped our company grow. I attribute my aviation uh, ability um, more than my business ability. My, my UB business education was good, but business is really common sense. And um, most anybody, uh, I think, could do a good job in business just by treating people fairly and, um, and uh, you know, doing the right thing for people. So that's where we are today. Great. Yeah, I love how you took your passion and brought it into the business to grow the business uh, that way. That's phenomenal. I think, you know, a lot of times people forget, you know, that when we're in a family business, um, you know, we should be talking about to each family member to say, what are your passions? And to see if there's any intersection between that passion potentially and, you know, uh, and, and, what, and what you're doing to see if you can't capitalize on that. Um, I, I'd also even take it a, a step further and be, you know, talking to employees, especially your key leadership employees to say, you know, what are your passions outside of work? And, you know, what else, you know, uh, drives you? Because when you can connect that passion with the, with the, the job, that's a win-win that's for everybody. Um, how, many, how many employees does Manitoba have today? We have approximately 60 between Lancaster, which has 50, and St. Louis, another 10 to, 10 to 12. Great. And then, and then it, within the joint ventures, is, there's probably a ton of employees that way that you touch that way as well. Uh, well, there, there is, but uh, we actually take advantage of existing infrastructure in, in cases. So we're actually, uh, for example, in the, in the meter recycling business, we're doing most of that work in our St. Louis plant. It's central to the country and it, it works well, both from a inbound and outbound perspective. And, and so we're actually leveraging Manitoba's existing facility and charging the joint venture. So it, it's, it's working well for all parties. Great. Um, where do I, what did I wanna talk about? I had a question on the tip of my tongue a second ago. Um, I know exactly what I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about through the years, you know, we all struggle, it, we, things happen. Would you mind sharing, you know, a story that could have tripped you up what did you learn from it? How did you manage through the struggle? You know, just, I, I think we learn more from our mistakes and more from our struggles than we do from the successes that we have. So who wants Dad, to, you want, to you want to go for that one? Well, we, <laughs> I'm a very, very conservative person. And, you know, I hate to keep bringing in uh, airplanes uh, to this conversation. We're really discussing family business. But when you, when, you, um, when you fly an airplane, you have to have a way out. You get into a difficult situation, um, you're in horrible trouble if you do not have some escape met method. Um, and that's one of the things we're taught, especially going through professional pilot training like, uh, like I did with the Air Force. So I've always operated the business on a very conservative basis. And we've always tried to find um, uh, a, a way out and not to put all our eggs in one basket, not ever to allow ourselves to get into a situation where it could bring us down. Now, having said that, there's drawbacks. There's certainly some good things to that uh, philosophy, but there's drawbacks. You don't, um, you maybe don't expand or have the success that you would have if you're too conservative but also you live to fight another day. And I always felt like um, we make a good living out of this business, we provide a, a good living for all of our employees. And um, we always wanna live to fight another day. So we've had, we've had our, our uh, ups and downs, we've made mistakes, 
but normally it's the kind of thing where maybe we bought something from a customer and the customer didn't deliver uh, because the market went against him. He sold it at uh, a low level and the market started moving up and he wouldn't deliver it. So we don't get that metal and that hurts us uh, quite a bit. Uh, we have very small profit margins in the recycling world. Uh, there's lots of competition out there for metals. So we work on small margins and if somebody doesn't uh, deliver the metal they owe us, a truckload of copper, and the market goes up 20 cents or 30 cents, when you only make two or three cents, that's a significant loss. Um, so we've had people like that. What happens is uh, we turn the page and we don't do business with them anymore. Um, and, you know, once in or, or twice in our in our career, we've gotten the bright idea that we really know the copper market and we could speculate and make some money. Um, although we've seen a number of people go out of business and Brian had mentioned earlier that we use a device called hedging. So that we're a buyer every single day, we're a seller every single day. And um, um, we hedge, which allows us to buy high and sell low and still make a profit. It's, it's a complicated thing, I, no point in really getting into it, but we do use that, uh, that tool and we use it a lot. But every once in a while we get a little too big for our britches and we think we really know this copper market and which way it's going and we've speculated. Now, never with uh, to the extent that we could bring the company down, we just wouldn't do that. Um, I, my philosophy just doesn't work that way, uh, but we have. And sometimes we've gotten kicked in the butt because we, we don't really know. We know the market's too high or the market's too low, but what we don't know is timing. When, when will the rest of the world decide it's too high or it's too low? So we really don't do any of that anymore because that's something that we've learned, learned the hard way. But we try not to ever do anything to the, that would bring the entire company down. And uh, just maybe just to emphasize that or talk a little further about that. So I mentioned earlier that, that we learned a lot from our customers. And I, I remember distinctly when I first joined the company, which is 1985, uh, shortly after I joined, we were visited by uh, the local brass mill in Buffalo. It's now known as Arubis. It's had many names over time, but they've had a pretty similar history to ours, somewhere between 90 and, and 100 years in business. So we haven't beat by just a little. Anyway, we have a really close working relationship with them. And, and again, there's a, a lot of trust and, and a lot of business back and forth with that particular firm. Well, they approached us in 1985, asked for an appointment to come visit my dad, myself, and and our partner, and they were talking about the fact that they were having uh, rejections internally uh, from scrap supplied by over 300 suppliers, and the, the rules were changing, and they were going to start grading us on everything from the metal quality to the packaging to the paperwork. And you know, we we were in the scrap metal business, and we thought, well, what is this about? These are scrap metal. How are we ever going to do this? We almost literally laughed as they left our office not to them, of course, but, but after they left. And, and then within 10 minutes, we kind of looked at each other and said, you know, this actually could be one heck of an opportunity because if we can figure out how to, how to make perfection, we can be the, the conduit. We can collect from other recyclers and make the right package and be one of their valued suppliers. And you know what? It worked beautifully. And uh, I, we still have a relationship with the purchasing agent who was in charge at that time and still to this day. He has letters in his file from other scrap dealers saying, you know, forget you. We've got other places we can ship to. We don't need this. And we're scrap dealers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the ones that realized that this was an opportunity are still supplying them today. And we're proud to say that, that 20 out of the last 21 years or something, we won their top quality supplier of the year award. And so we really value that relationship and it helped us because we learned that we had to move the company forward. We had, and we became ISO certified. It was one of the precursors to becoming ISO certified. So mistakes made, you know, sometimes it's, it's small or short-term. Um, but one thing I love about this company and, and about our family and about everybody here at Manitoba is that we, when there is a mistake made, we encourage getting feedback from our customer, our supplier, because that's how we learn and get better. And 
I really love that about our company because it does create opportunity. It's such, my dad mentions, it's a small margin, extremely transparent industry in that we, we don't handle retail, but if people come up to a scrap dealer with 10 pounds of copper, they pull out their iPhone and they say, oh, I see copper's up today. There are no bargains, you know, there's no fat margin anywhere along the chain. And so you have to do things well and do things right. And um, again, it's an opportunity uh, to hear from your customers and suppliers and learn and grow and, and do the right thing, which makes us all better for it. So uh, wonderful, wonderful opportunity for people to hear that it's within the obstacles within within the, you know, the, the issues or the problems that come up is the opportunity to grow and do something better than everybody else. It's how do we turn that issue into a core process of us, which gives us a competitive advantage. Nicely done. Adam, through the years, I got to believe, you know, your, your background being the fact that you did spend a lot of time outside of the business first, what are some of the things that you were able to bring from outside of the business to the business that were, that, that's been helpful for the family? Yeah, so it's a, a astute point and a, a good question. I because I like technology, I, I think that's the biggest thing that I probably brought from outside. I had great knowledge of great knowledge. I had moderately good knowledge of electronics and, and computers and the way they work. And I will say because our business is so old or our industry in general is so old that oftentimes we are reluctant or hesitant to adopt new program software, et cetera. And, uh, you know, one of the things I like is, is having more of a paperless environment and bringing technology in where and when it can help you. And, and Brian alluded to, you know, the, uh, the Niton analyzers before, you know, I remember when I started in the business, which was in 2008, um, we still had some guys at that time that, they were spark testing metal and they could tell what it was based on the spark. I remember we had one guy that would drop it on the floor and could tell by the, the, the sound that it made. I mean, uh, it's incredible. And I miss those guys because they were so good at what they did and, and there was no replacement for it until technology came along and now you can shoot it and, and, you know, essentially tell what, what it is. Although, I would say it's it's not always exactly 100% accurate, and and you know as as Brian mentioned, we just made a an even larger purchase on a device that is going to give us e even more um, information and and um, and uh, comfort level in knowing that there's aren't there's not a lot of uh, you know contaminants in our in our product because one of the things we're known for is producing very good pure products. So. I think technology has been a big one, uh, equipment and technology and, and really bringing us from, you know, what was paper and pencil, not, not exactly when I got in, but it was, it was just starting some of the, um, electronics, uh, we, we had, you know, and still do in large part have access based programs, but we've added computers on the floor. We've brought in other technologies, um, you know, like, uh, like the, the Niton that we alluded to and, and have done other things to try to get us up to speed and be a little bit more, uh, with the times, if you will. Great. Thank you. Yeah. As a family, there's three of you. I have to believe that, uh, you know, you don't always agree on a path forward. How, what is your decision-making process when you don't agree? How do you, how do you, how do you move forward if that, if that comes up? Does that ever happen? And, and how do you handle that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in. I'm sure each one of us might have a, a, a different slant on this, but from my perspective, first of all, within, it's, it, it's an amazing honor to work with my brother, my father, my son, and, and everybody here, but certainly the family element. I feel lucky about that. Uh, these are, are people that, that I know are committed, hardworking, passionate, and I have the utmost respect, which is a beautiful place to start. So uh, you have built-in trust and you just, you see it, you watch it, you live it every day. So I feel really fortunate with that. Um, there are times where, you know, I, I literally would walk into my dad's office and I would say, I'm here as your son, <laughs> or I'm here as your partner. 
or, or you know, to, to distinguish because sometimes the lines do get muddy and blurred. And so I think it, for me, that was kind of an important way to, to set the table as to the nature of the conversation. And that was learned over time. That wasn't inherent, you know, from day one, that was kind of learned over time and, and something I either picked up or, or, or it worked for me to um, set the table differently because although it's, they're indistinguishable in some ways, they're important to be separated in others. So um, fortunately, over the many years that, that I've worked with my dad and, and, and now with Adam, we really haven't had too many disputes. I mean, it's healthy for an organization to look at things in a different way. And I think we all respect that about each other. So we're, we're hearing what the other person's saying. We're trying to step back and not just immediately react. And that, that's a learned uh, technique as well to step back, think about it. And, um, and, and, you know, I think I learned, I read a book recently or, and heard that, you know, there's, there's things that are right in everybody's response and reaction. So to go from zero to hundred to say you're hundred percent right. And somebody else is zero percent right is ridiculous, of course. And so I think as you start to just hear that simple message, you start to look for what are the elements that that person is communicating that truly have value and will drive the organization forward. And at the end of the day, even if there's disputes, you know that uh, I feel that I know that the family members that are here are committed and they want what's best for the enterprise. And as long as you start from that base, then then you're good. So. Right. I would I would add to that a little bit. So, you know, for me, I think one thing that I've learned or I'm still learning is to pick pick your battles. Right. You know, not everything uh, always is so important that you have to. Uh, really fight for it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, as Brian alluded to, I think I know that he and my father always have the best interest of the company in mind. And, and so, you know, while I might not agree with something, um, you know, it's certainly not to the detriment of the business. And, 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 you know, it can be a learning experience even for me to better understand why they feel the way they feel. I, I think that. And then the other thing I think is, Oftentimes, if if there's a discussion or an argument or a disagreement that comes up, I really think it's good to extract yourself and, and take 24 hours and sleep on it. And I often find that when I'm angry about something, and it's rare that I, I get really angry about something, but I, I think sometimes your first you know, line of defense is to get defensive or, or think like, why this doesn't make any sense. But I find often uh, that if you take 24 hours and you sleep on it and you start to think about it from different angles, you can oftentimes sort of back off maybe the way you felt or, or start to understand how somebody else could see it from a different light. So, you know, I think, well, like I said, while sometimes your initial reaction uh, is is maybe uh, one of defensiveness or, or not understanding. I think oftentimes if you sit back and and then talk to others in your life. I talk to my wife oftentimes and I ask her, you know, I'll, I'll bring in what's happening in the family business in a confidential way, of course. And and I'll say, what are your thoughts? Am I overreacting? Do you agree? Do you disagree? And, and oftentimes she's a great sounding board because I am overreacting um, and, and she helps me to see it in a different light. So I think it's important to, to bounce it off other people that you care about and trust. And, but, but again, I think at the end of the day, taking time to sit back and think about it, nothing has to happen that quickly that you don't have time to sit back and think about it and make the right decision for everybody. Gentlemen, there was a lot of really packed information in there. I want to, I want to capture a couple of them, make sure people heard them when sometimes I think Brian, what you said, just making there's an old cartoon people have seen where the dad's wearing a hat that says you know hey son you're not you know it's got the boss hat on hey son as you know your boss i need to let you know that you're not performing so you're fired um and then in the next you know scene of the cartoon he's got the dad hat on and he you know looks at his son and says hey heard you had a tough day at work you want to talk about it and, and brian that's really what you're bringing to the table when when you're saying that is that you know hey i'm approaching you as as your son I'm approaching you as as you know a business as, as a business partner, and and having that distinction sometimes can just give people set the stage for what this you know what the, is the appropriate response in this circumstance. I really really appreciated you bringing that up, Adam. You know the you brought up the point of the fact that you know it is 
okay that we talk to our spouses. And, and, and I think that the point that I want to bring into that is that as a family business, we need to realize that even non, non-working members in the family business are affected by the family business and in a positive way, more often than not, but, you know, utilizing those people as that outside, you know, voice. Oh, yeah. yeah. Council really helps. So this is great stuff. I really appreciate, you know, everybody's input there. Um, we're down to, you know, the, the last couple of minutes here. One thing that I would love to know is when you're talking about your core customers, how well do you define, you know, who, who are your core customers today? Well, uh, in the in the core business, Manitoba Corporation, we're we're copper centric, so we're we're producing ninety eight percent of what passes through our facility is is copper, and uh, when it leaves us, we're looking for for people that are going to melt the material as an input to the next stage in manufacturing process. So, our customers, uh, because we've been in Western New York for so long, uh, are predominantly within a five hundred mile radius of of our facility. But that's not uh, exclusively true. We do supply outside um, of that, that radius. And uh, we do have the plant in St. Louis, which my dad and, and our partner, Joe Baker, opened in 1980, 81. And, um, and we're still operating that facility today. So over time, we've, we've grown some influence and we use that for warehousing, distribution, specialty packaging. As I mentioned earlier, this, this joint venture company and activity uh, is supported through the St. Louis operation. So, and we are looking as we, look out into the future to possibly uh, expand to, to potentially the Southeast as well, basically to create a triangle because we pull material from, from Southeast and we also ship back material to consumers in the Southeast. So that's on our, our um, horizon at some point as things settle down and we get past uh, the current COVID situation and we start to see a return of, of regular volume to our business. So um, anybody that's melting materials is really a potential customer and anybody that's producing any kind of copper scrap anywhere in North America is our potential supplier. Great. Any parting words from anybody else? I'll give uh, Richard, if you, if you had uh, one piece of advice or uh, one, one thing that you would be saying to uh, um, another family business, what would you, what would you leave them with? Sorry, I forgot I muted it. No problem. Um, I think I've already said this, uh, but I, I believe that you need to have an escape route all the time. You can't let yourself get into a situation where you have no out. And uh, when you're looking at doing something, an expansion, or you're looking at uh, a new piece of equipment or something, you, you need to make sure that you have the ability to operate that, to pay for it, that it's not going to create a situation that you, you can't afford to take a salary because you're so busy paying for uh, this debt you owe. Um, so I would say that that I believe is the way to operate the business. And um, that's kind of the philosophy that I've, uh, I've used throughout the years. But these two guys are uh, are very capable, and um, you know I think the company will be in great hands. Uh, I'm still here on a day to day basis. I um, I don't really have the ownership anymore, but um, but I like coming in and I uh, uh, and I do. Uh, but I do think that uh, we've got a good bright future. Great, Adam. Yeah, I think I think for me, uh, I would say leave work at work and, and separate work from personal, like, like, you know, Brian is really, I would say instilled that in me, you know, he, although I find him and my father talking about work all the time at family get togethers, but he, he's oftentimes said to me, let's, let's not talk about work at, at family get togethers and parties. Let's leave it at the office. And I think you do have to really separate you know, the, the work and the personal relationship. Sometimes there's tough conversations to be had and, and it gets awkward and uncomfortable, but you have to, again, understand that you're doing that uh, to drive the business forward and to try to, you know, improve 
the company's uh, culture and life and profitability and all those things. And, and while you might not always agree, you got to keep that at work and, and still maintain the, the relationship outside of the office. So I, I love working in a family business. I, as Brian said, it's, it's great to be able to come and see my brother and father at work every day and to get into the trenches with them and, and try to make things happen. And I feel very fortunate that way. And you know, there's a lot of good that comes with it. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and, and thanks for having us. Brian, take us out. <laughs> no pressure, right? Uh, well, Michael, thanks for, for hosting this. It's really, I admire the work that you've been doing and, and I wish you the best of luck as you continue to, to bring this information to other family enterprises. And um, I think it's, it's really, there, there are so many things to learn from, from others and you know, we're certainly glad to be here today and, and be a small contributor. And um, we look forward to, to everybody moving forward in a positive way and continue to build Western New York and beyond. So thank you. Great. Well, we've been talking with the owners of Manitoba Corporation today. And for anybody that wants to connect with them, um, manitobacorp.com is where you can find them on the web. Um, Adam, Brian, Richard, thank you all so much. Um, really appreciate your time and your sharing with us today. My name is Michael Columbus. This has been the Family Biz Show. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Um, if you like this episode, make sure that uh, you subscribe so you don't miss future ones. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we look forward to talking with you on another episode of the Family Biz Show. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.